the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'm looking at mortgages and the Irish property market and how both have or might be affected by the COVID-19 lockdown of the economy. On Monday, Jack Horgan-Jones of the Irish Times reported that majority state-owned bank AIB has put a blanket ban in place on mortgages for anybody who's been put in the government's wage subsidy scheme or is in receipt of the pandemic unemployment payment. So that's more than 860,000 people. And it seems that all of the other banks have put in place restrictions of one sort or another for those seeking new home loans. Separately, house price data from myhome.ie and Sherry Fitzgerald suggests that prices were pretty stable in the second quarter of this year in spite of the economy being in lockdown. So what does this mean for the outlook for the Irish property market? Are prices set to nosedive? Will demand be constrained by these new mortgage rules? Is this the calm before the real economic storm hits the country later this year? Join me on the line are Jack Horgan Jones of the Irish Times and John McCartney, a research director with property agent Savills. Now, Jack Horgan Jones, on Monday you reported that AIB has introduced wide ranging restrictions on mortgage lending in light of the COVID 19 pandemic. And this is according to internal documents, which I believe uh, you had a view of. And the new rules include a de facto ban on mortgage lending to those in receipt of the state's wage subsidies and extra scrutiny on applications from people working in high-risk sectors of the economy. Just explain to us why they're introducing these rules and how they're going to operate. Well, if if you were to take the bank's point of view, and it's not an unreasonable approach to, to take, um, they're introducing these rules because from their point of view, it's not necessarily the most prudent thing in the world to do to lend hundreds of thousands of euros to somebody uh, when a large proportion of their income is effectively contingent on a a subsidy from the state, which is going to expire in six or seven weeks' time. Now, what we got, as you said, was was a leaked document from from AIB. So we have more insight into AIB's policy than we do the other lenders. And and, and that document does reveal uh, the extent of the kind of the lockdown, to use use the phrase of of the moment, and that they've put in place on anyone who is in receipt of this TWSS, this temporary wage subsidy scheme. The document shows that it is currently the bank's position, this is a quote, currently the bank's position on customers who are in receipt of any element of the TWS or the pandemic unemployment benefit is to pause these applications until such time as the impacted customer is no longer in receipt of the payment. And it is very clear and very explicit in saying that there are strictly no exceptions to this position. So while there isn't a a, a, a ban in, in legislation, so to speak, this is like a, a de facto ban. It's clear that, you know, they, they don't really have an interest in the mo- at the moment in lending to these people. And, and the reason that they would offer is that, you know, and, and they said in fairness to them in, in a statement that they don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. You know, that we're we're still dealing with the legacy of the last collapse when tens of thousands of people were advanced hundreds of millions of euros in credit, which really they shouldn't have been. And they don't want to, to return to a situation whereby during the recession that is going to come, uh, a lot of these loans turn bad, which is not just a problem for the for the, the mortgage holder, but obviously it becomes a problem for the bank and the wider financial system if you have a lot of, of, of loans going bad at the same time for the same reason. Yeah, well, I suppose a couple of elements. Um, first of all, AIB is majority state-owned, so wondering if the government has any view on this. Um, and also, uh, in conjunction with this, we, we should remember as well, I suppose, that AIB, along with the other banks, has put in place payment breaks for thousands of uh, customers who have mortgages with the bank. 
and um, those breaks last for six months and once that six months period expires they then have to go into a forbearance arrangement if they can't go back onto their normal payment schedule isn't that right mm. so the it's an interesting point that you raise around the government view um so let's let's start obviously we have a new government and it's a government that is uh, composed of um, people who were recently in opposition uh, in the form of Fianna Fáil, who would have traditionally kind of hopped on this issue quite quickly. Um, we know how Pascal Donoghue feels about this because it was raised in a parliamentary question not too long ago. And he effectively said, look, you know, it, credit decisions, lending decisions, um, prudential decisions are a matter for each individual lender. And that was his position. OK, uh, but after we broke this story on Monday, um, Michael McGrath was quite quickly out both on News Talk and on RTE saying that he wasn't happy about this, that it was something that he had encountered before he became a minister. And I, he, he had raised it both with the bank's representatives and also with the governor of the central bank and that he was looking for some sort of action to be taken. Um, Later in the day, you had the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, coming out and saying that he agreed with the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform on this matter and that he would be looking for something to be done. Now, what exactly is that something going to be? That remains an open question. I went to the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform on Monday and asked them, um, would they give me some kind of indication of what the policy approach would be? They've actually bounced that back to the Department of Finance. So they bounced it back to Pascal Donoghue. So it's, it still remains to be seen whether, if or can they do anything in this regard? Right, okay. Well, that's the beauty of uh, Irish politics, I guess. Now, what if somebody already had an application in train? Let's say they were mortgage approved and they now find themselves in, in this wage subsidy uh, situation or their industry, maybe they're working for an airline or they're working in the hospitality sector, which is obviously uh, very much threatened at the minute. Uh, where do they stand? Well, you see, this, and, and the banks are being quite cute here because quite a few of them are saying, by all means, we're still open to applications uh, come and see us and make the appointment um, but you know it's one th- I mean I could apply to be the next editor of the Irish Times I'm not going to get the gig you know it's one thing to be able to apply it's another thing to get it all the way to the point where you can actually draw down the mortgage or, or be offered the position you know um, so if you look a little bit closer at what the individual banks and we did this in a follow-up piece on Tuesday what the individual banks are saying they're actually setting quite high bars for um, mortgage borrowers who actually get to get to draw down the loan who are in receipt of the TWSS. So, for example, uh, permanent TSB and also DILOSC, one of the uh, one of the kind of smaller um, mortgage specific lenders that set up last year, they're saying that if you want to draw down the funds, we'll, we'll give you approval and everything like that. But if you want to actually get to the point where you draw down the funds, we need a letter from your employer saying that your your wage will be sustainable after the TWSS expires. Now, I'm not sure how many employers could, in good faith, actually do that at the moment. You look a little bit further uh, for their field, Ulster Bank, for example, they're saying something similar, but I understand that, you know, they will be looking for the total absence of any COVID subsidy before they allow you to draw down. Um, there's some wrinkles in there, like, you know, if, if it's a joint application uh, and one, one partner is on the TWSS and the other isn't, and that person who's not on the subsidy, if their wage can cover the entirety the mortgage then you can draw down but again like that's a very high uh barrier to meet i mean how many how many how many couples are going to have one partner where their where their wage covers the entirety of the mortgage you know so in effect you're looking at at a, at a large scale i would say cooling if not freezing of the mortgage market and are, are people are are there any couples out there um, that you know of who are at risk of losing the deposit let's say on on uh, purchasing a house because of this uh, that's not something I've personally come across. Um, I mean, what you what you do find, and certainly what a lot of uh, the the political commentary around this has been, um, 
people who have had constituents come to them and make representations saying, you know, I, I, I had been saving for months and years, tens of thousands of euros. I'd gone through the already very stressful situation of trying to find a, a home in, 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 a, in a very um, difficult uh, housing market. And we thought we had one. And, you know, because of the because of this delay, we've lost the opportunity and the house has been sold to someone else. So while I'm not aware of anyone actually losing their deposit, uh, certainly there's a lot of stories in circulation of people losing the opportunity to buy a home, um, which would have been something they would have been working towards for years and years on end. Now, John McCartney, um, maybe just talk to you a little bit. About what's your view on uh, property prices? And can we just start, am I right in saying that you don't think there's a housing crisis? Because every politician in Dáil Éireann certainly does. Well, I suppose it's how you define a crisis, Kieran. I think we have to be cautious about assuming that we have a chronic undersupply of housing. That, that, that's my view on it, and that wouldn't be shared by most people, I guess. But my take on it is very simple. Uh, long before COVID, house prices in Dublin were, were actually falling. And, you know, uh, as, as any young student of economics will know, you know, the pricing signal tell, tells you about the balance of supply and demand in the market. And if prices are falling, it does tend to signify that the market, you know, is, is approximately in balance or even uh, has, you know, has enough houses. So that, that's my take. Now, the, the, the counter argument has always been, well, you know, it's um, the reason that the house prices have been edging lower over the last 12 months is because of these tight mortgage lending rules. And if it wasn't for those, we'd be able to see the market in its true colours and then we would see the true undersupply. But I, I personally don't buy it because if you go to the Midlands region, for example, the average house price is from memory about €190,000. Uh, a couple on average earnings in the Midlands could borrow €250,000. So the mortgage rules are definitely not binding. Uh, for that average couple in the Midlands. And yet in the Midlands, house price inflation has cooled dramatically since mid-2018, just as it has in, in Dublin. So that suggests that the mortgage rules are not the explanation. Equally, we've seen rental growth slow down as well. Um, and surely nobody is arguing uh, that um, mortgage rules are causing rental growth to slow. If anything, tight mortgage lending would be diverting people into the rental market, supporting rents rather than causing rental growth to slow. So when you put it all together, it seems to me that the geographical dispersion of slowing house price inflation and, and, and the, 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 the evidence of less inflationary pressure across different tenures all suggests that the market is probably closer to balance than people think. And I think one simple reason why there's a misperception about this is in the way that we, we calculate the, you know, the, the total supply of new houses, people refer to the new dwelling completion statistics that have been available for the last couple of years from the CSO. And that's certainly a big step up in, in terms of the transparency of the market that wasn't there until relatively recently. So it's, it's great. And those figures showed that we had about 21,000 units built last year. But actually, if you were to include student beds, if you were to include um, uh, vacant properties that have been brought back into, into use. And if you were to include the completed ghost estate units that are still being finished off and brought into use, they're not counted among the new dwelling completions. So those three elements of hidden supply together um, would have brought total supply up to over 25,000 units 
last year compared with the 21,000 people quote. And, and actually, over time, those hidden elements of supply have been very material. I've just I jotted down the numbers here before we came on the call. Uh, since Q2 2016, we've built 8,346 student beds, mostly in Dublin and Cork, and none of those included in the new dwelling completions. Since the start of 2011, we've had 19,546 uh, what we call reconnections. These are vacant properties that have been brought back into use. And we've had 13,225 unfinished. These are the ghost estate units that are, are not counted in the new dwelling completions. So when you add that all up, it, it accounts for about an extra 36% of all of the, 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 the dwellings that have been completed since the start of 2011. So, you know, it may well be that people just don't have a handle on just exactly how much housing output we're actually delivering. And the other side of it, of course, is that on the demand side, people disagree about how many units we actually need to be building. You know, some people think we need to be building 50,000 units a year. Others think we only need to be building 20,000 a year. But it would seem to me that, you know, based on the pricing signal, we're building about 25,000 a year. And the market probably needs something around around that level, maybe a little bit more, to come to come in into balance. So, I you know I I certainly wouldn't dispute the fact uh, that house prices are too high, um, uh, but but I I would be cautious about suggesting that the solution to all of this is to turbocharge supply and to flood the market with loads of additional houses because what we don't want to do is we don't want to you know, un undermine the, the, the value of existing householders' uh, property assets. And certainly, I think sure. no, no politician would want that. Okay, but without getting into the weeds, I suppose, of the history of the housing crisis, um, anecdotally anyway, I think a lot of people um, feel there is a housing crisis. And uh, certainly a lot of first-time buyers feel they can't get on the property ladder, particularly, you know, single people. Um, they, they feel as if uh, they're totally excluded, and particularly those in, in Dublin. And it was, uh, I think it's fair to say it was a big election issue. But let's maybe just look at what impact COVID is likely to have on house prices. I had um, Mark Fitzgerald, chairman of Sherry Fitzgerald, the biggest estate agent in the country, on recently. And he said he was, um, I suppose he fudged it a little bit, but he said that prices would probably fall a small bit this year, but would rebound next year. Now, we have Pascal Donoghue telling uh, his Oireachtas colleagues uh, before um, the government formation talks that we're probably looking at a, an unemployment level of about 300,000 people, um, you know, around year end. Unemployment rates, um, depending who you listen to, probably around 12, 15 percent, some, something like that at year end, depending on how the economy uh, recovers, could even be worse than that. Who knows? Um, and we have, uh, you know, we have a lot of people, uh, this is perhaps the calm before the storm, we have a lot of people on the wage subsidy scheme, we have a lot of people in payment breaks, they're going to come off those payment breaks in, in some months, the wage subsidy scheme, as Jack has mentioned, will end in August. So I'm just wondering what the what the impact of COVID and the lockdown on the economy and the, the hammering that the economy has taken and so many sectors have taken is going to have for house prices for the year as a whole. I suspect it will be negative. I expect that house prices will fall in Dublin by somewhere between 5 and 10% this year. So the context is that house prices were already edging lower before 
COVID kicked in, um, you know, I just went and looked at the numbers again before we went on the call, and they're down about 1.7% in the, you know, in the last nine months in, in Dublin. So that that's not reflecting COVID because there's a lag in the house price data so that, you know, the numbers that we're looking at now really reflect deals that were done back in sort of December and January. So we have yet to see the COVID effect come through in the numbers, but when it does, I think it'll be, I think it'll be negative. Um, but I, I wouldn't be un, unduly pessimistic about this. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at the real fundamentals of it, uh, you know, house prices will be determined by the number of people that need to be housed, that which is really just population growth and the number of units that are being produced. And COVID has had a negative impact on both. Increasingly in recent years, population growth has been more and more composed of net migration. And net migration is obviously going to take a hit because of the the, the restrictions on international travel. It'll work both ways, but because the inflow is bigger than the outflow, if it hits equally in, in equal proportions on both sides, it'll result in, in a, 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 a contraction of net migration. So that's going to reduce housing demand. Supply is also going to reduce, and there'll be an offsetting effect there. You know, in one sense, the fundamentals will probably be quite neutral from the COVID effect. I think what will affect the market more so is what Jack was talking about at the outset of, of, of the podcast here, and that is the, the mortgage uh, Effects because, as you say, there's been a big labour market shakeout. Um, my understanding is that it's not just AIB that most of the banks have adopted a similar posture on uh, lending to people that are on schemes. And I think what this means is that the ability uh, for people to to actually draw down their mortgages when when it comes to the crunch will be restricted. And as a result, people will be able to pay less. And I think in the short term, that's going to negatively impact prices. But I think a critical point, and it's a more optimistic point, is that I think if we look 18 months ahead, I think uh, prices will stabilize and recover because I think what this COVID thing is going to definitely do is it's going to make it more difficult for developers to get funding and get on site. Uh, to build new housing schemes. And if there's a sort of a, a narrowing of the supply pipeline right at the most upstream uh, point, uh, then, you know, in 18 months' time, we're going to get a reduction in the supply of properties, and this will drive prices probably back up again. So I do think that in the short to medium term, we are going to see uh, softening prices, but I don't think it's going to last forever. And I would think that, you know, if people are in the position um, to, to get on with it sure. and they're comfortable and confident to do that, they should go ahead and do it because I think in 18 months' time, we'll be back again with prices edging up. At Davy, we know uncharted territory can be a challenge. We've been in business since 1926 and since then, we've advised many different clients through many global and national crises. Some will seek comfort in the safe and familiar while others will embrace the opportunity to try something new. Throughout the years, we've not only listened to our clients, we've got to know you personally, helping us advise you on a financial life plan that suits you best. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. Janie Davy, trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. 
Jack, uh, on that point about the house builders, have they been saying anything about these uh, mortgage, these changes to mortgage rules by AIB and the others? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously in, in the run up to, to this, we had a lot of uh, home builders, a lot of the big builders kind of bleating over the fact that the, the macro prudential rules, the loan to value and loan to income rules were kind of putting an artificial break on, on uh, demand. So they were saying there's lots of people out there who want to buy houses and we certainly want to build them for them, but um, we can't because they can't buy them because of these central bank rules. And basically they're looking at this and thinking, God almighty, on top of the central bank rules, are we now looking at a situation where even people who do qualify in the eyes of the central bank are going to start getting discounted um, in the eyes of the lenders themselves because they're not quite sure about their income going forward? And and we had a, a statement, I think, from the, the Home Builders Association raising concerns over these mortgage applications being being shot down um, in reaction to some of the reporting that, that, that we've been doing. Um, just to, to come back to some of the stuff that John was saying, I, I think he, he's, he's absolutely correct. You know, that there are a lot of people and, and, and to boil it down really like there's a lot of people trying to get houses and they're willing to spend a lot of money on it but there's also a lot of people who are on this covid payment a third element is that there's a big emphasis on homeowning in ireland and and why is that it's because the the value of your retirement pot the value of your household is often tied up in in the value of of of, of the home and getting access to that asset in the first place. So if you have a breakdown whereby someone wants to do that but can't do it because the financial sector is, is, is starting to lose a little bit of confidence in the household sector and in the real economy, that's where it starts to become slightly worrying and slightly unsettling. And, the, and, and you might start to see this as a kind of leading edge indicator of some of the more difficult economic trends that may be coming down the track arising from COVID. And that's why I think this is such a such an important story, because it's a real kind of canary in the mind story, you know? Yeah, sure. John, what's your view of the property market overall? I mean, you're, you're more in the commercial space with Savills. Um, how's the commercial property space shaping up? I suppose there's there's acute uncertainty at the moment, Kieran, as you can understand. Uh, I mean, what are our big commercial sectors uh, offices uh, is a really important sector, particularly in an economy like Ireland that's increasingly driven by service activity and FDI. Um, and you know, we 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 have um, a number of immediate headwinds. Firstly, there's a high rate of infection in America which uh, is, is, is problematic um, for American companies that represent a, a considerable part of the occupier base in the Dublin office market. So that's a sort of uh, a concern because over the last number of years, um, you know, these, these tech companies have accounted for about 50% of the take-up of office space. And, you know, if, 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 if there are difficulties in America and in the American economy, which we know there are arising from COVID and other social unrest and other factors coming, um, uncertainty about the elections in November and all of that, you know, that has an impact on business decisions, which, which, which hits uh, leasing activity in Dublin. Uh, the other thing is there is this question about whether, you know, the, the technology that we're using successfully here today you know, has been a game changer for the for the office market or office markets internationally. You know, people are, I think, legitimately questioning, do we need so much office space? You know, here we are, we got no advance warning of this. We had to, we had to wing it. And yet the technology has proved really reliable and people were able to get on, people who work in office-based activities were able to get on and do that sort of stuff remotely. 
So I, I, I think it's a it's it's an open question. Now you would have strong arguments on on both sides. You know, uh, you know, I, th- I think wearing my Savile's hat, I would be saying, well, the, the you know the 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 office provides a focal point. It provides um, a means of of achieving succession uh, because it's how you train your young people through osmosis, meeting their senior colleagues and hearing them and observing what they do. Um, it, it, it improves collaboration and, you know, all of this good stuff, but equally it costs money. Um, and I think ultimately what, what, what may end up happening is that, you know, eventually we'll, you know, um, people will begin to say, well, hang on a second, my home costs money as well. And if I'm going to be use it, using it for work, I'm going to be claiming for electricity. I'm going to need a new chair. I'm, 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 I'm going to need you to contribute to the, to the heating bill and so forth. Uh, you know, so I think factors like that, we've already actually seen them come in. And then employers, we have seen countering by saying, I think um, Mark Zuckerberg might have said, well, you know, um, you can work from Oregon if you want, but uh, we're not going to pay you Silicon Valley wages if you continue to to dial in from from Oregon. You know, so you know, I think there's going to be it's a good story, and there's plenty of legs in it yet. And ultimately, you know, it 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 could well accelerate the pace of globalization too. You know, because if 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 you can do your job just as well twenty kilometers from the office. You know, maybe there's a guy in another country who can do your job, you know, who can do your job just as well as you from two thousand kilometers away, and maybe he's a lot cheaper. No, don't say that, John. <laughs> um, there's none of us indispensable, sadly. But you know, it's it's an interesting uh, question. And do you know what? Maybe COVID will blow over. All of these biohazards uh, will be resolved with a. Uh, 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 a widely available vaccine and we'll have forgotten about it all in 12 months. You know, you just don't know. <laughs> well, that, that's always possible. Jack, you've been covering the reopening of the economy. What's your sense? Are we, are we in this, are we going to be in this doom loop forever or do you, do you get a sense that uh, things are beginning to opening up? There's a bit more optimism out there. Oh, crikey. Um, let's have a think. Well, I had, I had a sandwich in a cafe for the first time today. So that's, that's a difference. Um, and I, look, I think, I think that because the government has has kind of stepped up to the plate and uh, come in with policy interventions like the TWSS, probably incomes have to a greater degree than would normally be expected kind of hung together. Okay, so I would imagine that people are coming out of the period of lockdown with their finances in in a much better state than would otherwise be the case if it weren't for all these massive state interventions. So they've kind of bought themselves some some time by filling all of our pockets with state funds, you know, disintermediated through through our employer in many instances, but nonetheless, it's, it's state money. And and that's a kind of, um, it's a little bit of a punt because it does, it does presuppose to a greater or lesser extent that we will be able to substantially op- open up as we go on. So whether that whether the, the the trick is actually pulled off and whether um through this kind of bridging finance almost we get to a place where we can kind of pick up where we where we were um and slowly filter back in um to the level of economic activity that 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 was the case you know in January and February 
remains to be seen. I think on on the balance of things, I'm probably slightly pessimistic that 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 is going to be the case. I think that as as we've heard from all the public health experts, we're going to be living with this thing for quite a long time, and how that shakes out in the real economy um, remains to be seen. But I think I think probably almost certainly you're gonna have you're gonna have income effects. Um, there's just going to be less economic activity, and I think that'll trickle down to all our pocketbooks, and that just means there's going to be less money circulating in the economy. So I I, I do th- I do think that we'd be hard pressed to just you know pick up the baton and start running again as though nothing ever happened. And where does this mortgage story go from here? <laughs> it's it's similar actually because like if 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 the TWSS takes off in August, right, or if it's allowed to take off in August, and we find that people um people's incomes haven't really gone down that much and their employers are able to step back in, well, then the banks will get what they've been looking for, which is a couple of months of pay slips without any TWSS on it. And then they're able to go, grant, okay, fine, let's let's go ahead and loan to you. But uh, as I've already outlined, I'm not sure it'll be so seamless a process. So I think either we see the wage subsidy scheme tick off and then perhaps certainly concentrated in some higher risk elements, uh, sectors of the economy, you'll see wages go down and you'll see lending go down. And then you might get into one of those terrible 2008 style doom loops where, you know, you have negatively reinforcing dynamics within the economy. Or perhaps you get the government extending this, the, the wage subsidy and just saying, look, you know, we need to buy ourselves more time here and we need to keep the economy kind of intubated, you know, um, and, and, and you just hope for the best again and, and, and keep borrowing to put money into people's pockets um, in the hope that we get a handle on the public health and the clinical health aspects of these of, of, of COVID um, and are able to, to, to triage the economy in, at a time when we have, you know, the, the virus not only suppressed, but, but kind of finally under control and conquered. And John, there's a huge number of people who've been taken out of the market for a mortgage uh, if these rules are applied right across the board. I mean, you're talking about, I think it's 865,000 people who are either on the wage subsidy scheme or the pandemic unemployment payment. Yes, correct, Kieran, but they still need to live somewhere. So where do they where do they go? You know, they may have to um, they may have to forfeit their ambitions to be homeowners, at least temporarily. Uh, but you know, they're, they're still going to have to put a roof over their heads. And the reality is that that keeps them in the rental sector. And as a result, that underpins rents. And uh, if, if rents are underpinned, then values of rental properties are preserved. And, and so far, I have to say, we do um, block management on a number of institutionally owned um, PRS schemes, as we call them, private rented sector schemes. And the rent collection has been very strong to date, as you would expect, for the reasons that Jack has said, that the the, the um, proliferation of 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 these uh, state income supports has enabled that to to continue to be the case. And I think you saw the IRA's results were were very good as well, and they're the the state's biggest landlord, and their rent collection figures were were, were very good. And that's not necessarily a surprise, because uh, and. Because a we've got the the state income supports, but b we've we've um, we've also got people that are I think going to be in that rented sector uh, for the longer term that may have had ambitions to become owner occupiers this year, and they're not now going to be able to do that because of the mortgage situation. I don't see that changing, by the way, because I think uh, the banks are all also going to have to keep um, one eye open. And um, both for the, as you've alluded to earlier, the sort of the, the, the point in time when the, 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 the six month 
holiday expires, but also for um, business loans, because we, we don't yet know what the fallout is going to be there. And it does seem likely that there is going to be business failures and that's going to be a sort of a slow burning consequence of this. So I think the banks are probably correct to be so prudent and they have no choice. So um, I, th- I think, look, you know, in the sales market, um, I think we probably will see pr- pricing edge lower, as I've said earlier, but I think the rental market will continue uh, to to be strong. And it is interesting that if you look in at, at, the, at the wage subsidy scheme statistics, uh, we know that the government only covers 70% of, of, of the salaries, but a very high proportion of employers are, are topping it up, up to the full amounts, you know, and you saw the data from the CSO last week uh, that actually... Uh, you know, a lot of people, um, in, um, a large majority of people, in fact, have suffered no real significant loss of income so far as as a result of COVID. So I think the rental market remains strong. I mean, you've had, arguably, you've had some Airbnb type units come back onto the market because they were effectively hotel rooms and that tourism thing has, has obviously been really hard hit. And I think Ronan Lyons said that somewhere between 500 and 700 Airbnb units have come back onto the market in, in, in Dublin. So that creates an element of competition for, for rentals, which would all things equal lead to softening rents. But I think overall that market, the rental market will hold up strongly and that will in turn preserve values. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, people, if the population remains as it is, or even grows a little bit, you know, um, I think I think uh, residential values are going to remain reasonably well underpinned and fairly stable. Yeah, final word to you, Jack. It's a bit of a double-edged sword for the banks. On the one hand, they're protecting themselves against uh, potential uh, future trouble, if you like, by um, you know clamping down on the mortgage applications. But lending is the lifeblood of any bank, isn't it? And the Irish banks have been struggling for growth uh, really in a meaningful sense over the last uh, number of years because of the legacy of the 2008 crash. So if they're having to clamp down on mortgage lending, which was starting to come back, we're starting to get a, a decent flow of lending going on over the past few years, it's, uh, it's not going to be good for the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, as, as you say yourself, Kieran, they have to lend money to make money. That is their business model. Um, and, and I think that you know, just we, we mentioned 2008 a second ago, right? 2008 was kind of a case of, of in some ways, death from above for the banks. You know, capital markets seized up and they couldn't fund themselves. And then they're also caught by their own bad lending practices. I think they, they will be equally nervous of, of a case uh, of death from below, you know, where their customer base no longer presents a kind of viable credit uh, proposition to them. And then they're they're caught out by the fact that and and as they have made this point themselves during the week that they now have regulatory and legal obligations under the post crash rules to make very tight and close assessments uh, of people's creditworthiness before they they um, advance a loan to them. So if people are tripping up on those hurdles and you know you get a, a you get a situation where there's nobody to lend to, there's no viable consumers or businesses out there to lend to, then that becomes a big problem. And and of course, um, it becomes a big problem then again for the state not just because we we hold significant shareholdings still in a lot of these banks but because as we saw not too long ago uh, when your financial sector trips up it, it's a big problem for for developed economies and a big problem for their politics as well 
Yes, OK, we'll see how it plays out. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Uh, Jack Horgan-Jones and John McCartney of Savills. OK, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Jack Horgan-Jones and John McCartney for their contributions. Our thanks also to Davey for their continued support as sponsor. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay well.